0: Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 213. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is fellow formulator, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie.
1: Hi, Perry. How
0: are you holding up there in that uh, quarantine?
1: I feel very isolated, but it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, we have a lot of beauty questions to answer today, and we're going to get to a few of them here. Including, what do you think of the Beverly Hills MD Brow Serum? Yes, we're going to talk about a product there. <laughs> we're going to talk about whether lash tints are safe. We'll also discuss why some anti-aging ingredients affect skin colors, among some other questions. And finally, why do dermatologists keep saying hyaluronic acid is pointless? Wow, they do, huh? <laughs> but first, why don't we get to some of that inane chit-chat we're so famous for, Valerie. Valerie. <laughs> What have you been doing with yourself? I mean, the country is in total lockdown, practically.
1: Well, it is insane. I actually have a photograph of 405 that I took today, where it is completely empty. It's very bizarre, especially when it usually looks like a parking lot.
0: And 405 is the highway in California.
1: It's the major north-south highway on the west side of Los Angeles.
0: Famous for always being crowded. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you know, on the plus side, it's cutting down all the smog, right? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really good for the environment, but yeah, it's totally crazy times.
0: Yeah, I really can't believe it. I mean, uh, and this isn't going to turn into virus talk. This we're going to give like a we're give us give the people the break from all the virus talk. But you know, we are uh, sort of confined to our homes and all the. I'm amazed all the restaurants and bars are closed. I mean, what am I going to do with myself?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the usual business for you, right? You work from home anyway.
0: That is true, and uh, but. But my wife is home working, too. Like, her entire company told everyone to work from home for at least the rest of this month.
1: Mr. Cosmetic Chemist is the same. He's home as well.
0: Ah, but it did give us a chance to uh, come up with some mixture that we called the Quarantini, which was a, a gin cocktail, which is very good. But
1: <laughs> Yeah. Well, this podcast will kill you, one of my favorite podcasts. They do a Quarantini every episode. I oh, love do it. Yeah. Oh, nice. It's fun. Mm-hmm. The-
0: Actually, I I list I started listening to their I think their latest episode and they were apologizing because they hadn't covered the COVID, the coronavirus yet.
1: Well, they do or cover
0: hadn't, it. Hadn't updated, on, yeah.
1: They yeah they need to update it because I think so They're, much information has come out recently. It's, just it's going uh, crazy. It's really crazy. I, I uh, actually didn't have a beauty science news article this week just because everything flooding my feed is related to COVID nineteen and it's. It's really just incredible. I mean, the beauty industry, like many other industries, is virtually shut down at this point for hand sanitizers. I I keep seeing that a few companies are saying, hey, we're going to manufacture a bunch of hand sanitizer and donate it to keep the market going, uh, which I find interesting because uh, carbomer, the main ingredient that's used to thicken hand sanitizer, to thicken the water and the alcohol is on sales control because of the surge in demand. Isopropyl alcohol has sales control on it. Ethanol has sales control on it. So unless you currently buy and have forecasted volumes, you can't, have any new business coming in. So I I'm, I'm wondering how they're able to get the raw materials to make the hand sanitizer.
0: Yeah, that's it's pretty amazing. I've seen a lot of people on my uh cosmetic formulation forum complaining they can't get ethanol, they can't get alcohol, they can't get uh thickeners and yeah, it's 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 quite amazing. And yeah. still, if you're stuck at home, just use soap and water, people. You
1: don't need, soap and you don't water need, works great. I actually I ran out of hand soap and yeah. we are totally sold out of hand soap at work. And I guess I could make my own, but I found um, an old gallon of shampoo that I had made. So yeah. I'm just using that. It's like the same stuff. It's same. A, a sulfated shampoo. It's very generic. Yeah, uh, I use it to clean my lab wear, my home lab wear, but I've just been using that. It works the same.
0: Yeah, and, I mean your hands will probably be a bit dry, but use some lotion afterwards. <laughs> yeah. All right. Of are we course. ready to find the talk about the one beauty science news story that I found that wasn't related to the virus? Let's do it. <laughs> All right, this one uh, comes to us out of Washington saying are asking the question whether cosmetics are going to become more regulated. According to this report in Happy Magazine, there is a bill making its way through Congress regarding the regulations of uh, cosmetics. Now, it's tough to say whether these things will go anywhere because, you know, the way it works is that first a bill gets sort of crafted by some legislator in a subcommittee – And then it goes to the full committee of whatever committee it is. And then it goes to a vote to the House floor. And then from there, it's got to go to the Senate and the president's got to sign it. And, you know, in our country these days, uh, they seem to be completely against regulations. So I doubt this is going anywhere. But uh, this story says that the new regulations went from the subcommittee and has moved now to the committee committee for everybody to argue about. But in looking at the bills, it seems like they're trying to get rid of animal testing. Um, they actually said if your product is animal tested, it will be determined to be adulterated. Uh, but then, of course, they list a bunch of exceptions, which pretty much covers any instance that you would do animal testing now. So
1: so ridiculous.
0: I know. I just, I just uh, look Then sure why it's bother, like, right? I know. I, mean, it's, I think they just bother – they. They say that just so they can say, oh, yeah, you can't test on animals, (laughs) except, you know, of course, when you can. And it kind of reminds me of the EU ban on animal testing. And and people make a big deal about the EU banning animal testing. Uh, But the reality is uh, they banned animal testing specifically for cosmetics. But if there's an ingredient, um, there's still – and if you want to qualify for some of the REACH uh, regulations – they still require you to do animal testing in those cases. And if you're doing pharmaceutical research, you could do animal testing. So there's a lot of loopholes in that EU ban on animal testing.
1: Exactly. The law is you can't use ingredients that have been animal tested on cosmetics since 2009 for cosmetic purposes. So if there is another industry that is conducting animal testing, you are more than welcome to use that safety data to apply it to your cosmetic products. So even if the animal testing wasn't specifically done for cosmetics, if it's been done for another industry, you can use that data as well. It's, it's really interesting. And two, with REACH, REACH is an environmental regulation in Europe and they require um, some animal testing to be done for the, uh, for some of the environmental um, and, hu- and human exposure safety, which then disqualifies the ingredient from being used in cosmetics. It's, it's really an interesting, bizarre regulation.
0: Yeah, but the bottom line is they kind of write these regulations where, uh, for PR purposes, they can make it seem like they're doing something good, but then when the rubber hits the road, that's not really a change at all. <laughs> Another thing that they talked about is that they require the FDA now to review the safety of five ingredients a year, and the first five that were listed were like imidazolidine urea, quaternium fifteen, I don't know, propyl uh some some uh traditional preservatives that that people have questions about which seems fine but they only do five ingredients a year so there's 20,000 ingredients it seems like that's gonna probably take a long time
1: well the next beauty brains episode in the year 6020 will be interesting when when everything's all said (laughs) and done
0: (laughs) indeed indeed uh Oh, interesting. The thing uh, that I saw in the regulations, uh, because I went through and read them, and they are still going to let companies say fragrance instead of listing all the fragrance ingredients. And I thought one of the big deals that the environmental working group made about uh, these regulations, the the current regulations, is that you can hide stuff in fragrance because you just call it fragrance. So it's interesting that they're going to keep that loophole.
1: I just don't think that this legislation is going to move the needle. Just my personal opinion, personal but professional opinion, not affiliated with that of my <laughs> <Right>. employer.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's interesting, both the PCPC, which is the cosmetic uh, industry trade group, and the environmental working group are both applauding this thing. And I read all this, I'm like, this doesn't really seem like it's going to do much at all. Uh, I mean, there are fees involved, so I guess that might have an impact on, you know, companies that are going to have to pay more to launch their products, but I don't know. You know, I did just one final thing. I did want to call your attention to one of the claims made in the article uh, about the cosmetic industry. Now, there was a spokesman from the Environmental Working Group. Uh, Like I said, they like the legislation. And he said that the following about the cosmetic industry, he said, quotes, no category of consumer products is subject to less government oversight than cosmetics and other personal care products.
1: (laughs) That's false, no. not true. No, it's,
0: just, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> granted the the regulations are uh, vague, but they are there. Um, to me, the least regulated, and in my view, the most dangerous consumer product segment is the supplement industry. by far. back in nineteen ninety four Congress passed the Dechet Act, which I thought was you know just terrible. Uh, but that essentially took all the power away from the FDA to actually regulate the supplement industry, and it put those regu- those rules right into the hands of the supplement industry. <laughs> and so, and I, have, I have zero faith in the quality of supplements. But it does always make me wonder. Like, we have the campaign for safe cosmetics. We have all these bloggers and everybody, you know, sort of dumping on the cosmetic industry. <laughs> Why doesn't anybody dump on the supplement industry? Where where is the campaign for safe supplements? <laughs> I mean these are things that you ingest and they actually kill people. Uh, it oh, just yeah. it, it just baffles baffles my mind.
1: I'll I'll never know. I I mean I guess it's more sexy to say that your lipstick is killing you versus this herbal supplement you got from China contains heavy metals and is killing
0: your liver. I don't know. <laughs> right. Go figure. All right, we're ready for some beauty questions? Yeah. Well, our first question comes to us from Diana. Diana says Hi there. I just bought this after getting really mesmerized by the infomercial. And of course, after I received it, I'm wondering are any of these ingredients dangerous? <laughs> That's a good thing to wonder about a product you just bought from an infomercial. Now, I knew it might not be as effective as they promised, but I didn't think about potential harm. Do you mind taking a look? And then she provided a link to the Beverly Hills MD, the Thick Full Brow Enhancing Serum. Now, before we talk about this product, let's talk a little bit about infomercials and why they work so well with beauty products. And they're pretty common. Now, I remember seeing, I think the infomercial that I saw the most was the proactive infomercials.
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot of those. uh, Jessica Mm -hmm. Simpson
0: was on those.
1: There were a bunch of celebrities, I think, over the years, yeah.
0: Yeah, they built an entire brand with just an infomercial, really. And it was darn effective. See, one of the biggest challenges in the beauty industry is that it's really a product that you kind of have to try, right? This is why testers like at places like Sephora are so effective, you get to try the product for free and you know and a lot of people are just sold on that right when you try it but the reality is you can't send samples to everyone so probably the next best thing for getting the ideas about your products out is infomercials they allow you to kind of explain the problem and they you demonstrate your solution and you get lots of testimonials of course and they really do work and they don't work just In the beauty industry, they work in a lot of different industries, although some products work better than others, I suppose.
1: Yeah, well, they really can utilize emotion, which is huge in demonstrating why you need a product. You can empathize with an individual or say, wow, that happened to me too, or is that happening to me? And it makes it a little more convincing to dial that 1-800 number and give the product a try, but it totally utilizes emotion and employs almost no logic
0: one of the biggest reasons that they're effective is because they don't really have to follow all the same advertising standards that, you know, are in most commercials. So when Procter and Gamble wants to advertise Pantene, that 30-second or 60-second commercial, they have to storyboard it out, they have to give that that all that information to the TV station. And then the TV station asked them to see their evidence of all of their claims. And I remember when I was working on the Tresemme brand, I would have to look at the storyboards for commercials that they wanted to run. And we would have to prove every single claim. And, mm-hmm. and you could give them a deck of a test. And if the person who was deciding whether that proved the claim or not, they could say no, we don't think that proves it, and you have to go do more testing. It was—it's very involved to get a commercial on TV, but these infomercials—they don't actually follow the same standards. They see the, what happens is the TV station will sell a whole half hour or something, and then they don't—they just don't put as many restrictions on what you can say now. You still can't outright lie, although I, I suppose maybe you could get away with it more easily. But you're not going to have to give uh, validation and proof of every claim that you're making. And, you know, they, so they just have a lot longer because the way it does it, they sell the whole half hour block instead of uh, selling a commercial time within the portion of a show. So I think th- just the regulations are different in there. The other thing about infomercials is they're set up to uh, create a sense of urgency and scarcity, and so that really makes you get your phone out and, and uh, you know, buy products. So, you know, buy now and save. They do that all the time. And they're specifically designed to get you to act without thinking. They also show them at, like, midnight or 2 in the morning where your brain isn't working as well, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll give me my phone. I'll order this. So... So all this is to say, I'm not really surprised that she was mesmerized by the infomercial and that made you buy the product. So we look at the product now, Valerie.
1: Yeah, let's take a look.
0: All right. uh, First, the ingredient list. There's a lot of ingredients in here, huh?
1: Yeah, you know, not as many as I thought there could be, but definitely lots of plant extracts. Lots of them.
0: So in looking through it, they have the standard ingredients. They have water. They have... Glycerin, butylene glycol, propane diol, so some humectants, a solvent. Uh, so those are decent ingredients. And then the ingredients that are going to have the primary effect that you'll notice is that they have a bunch of film formers. They have uh, taurate VP copolymer. They have sodium hyaluronate, or our good friend, hyaluronic acid. pullulan, sclerotum gum, and xanthan gum. Now that is a lot of thickening ingredients. Mm-hmm. Do you know why they? Do you know why they have those that many thickening ingredients?
1: I'm gonna guess to, I don't know. I actually don't know the answer. That is a lot, though.
0: Yeah. Well, this is what I pondered. Right. If you look at their ingredient list, they have their goody ingredients way up at the top of the list. If you took one of these thickeners, you'd have to use maybe a high amount to get the right viscosity. So if you combine thickeners, you can use a lower amount of all of them, and if they don't reach the one percent line, then you put them in any order that you want, right?
1: Additionally, there could be some synergistic thickening going on uh, with them. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the different thickeners will affect the feel and the rheology, mm-hmm. but I think it, I think it more is related to how they wanted to order their ingredients, and as long as they keep them all under one percent. They could still achieve their thickness, and by using multiple ones. So that's just my guess. That's,
1: that's very interesting. I, I guess I uh, I'm a minimalist formulator, so I would never think to do that because to me that's a little, little it's bizarre. It's a lot of work. Um, yeah. So
0: <laughs> I, yeah. I I agree, and and a lot can go wrong there. Uh, and then they have conditioning agents like the peg twelve dimethicone and, and emulsifiers and stabilizers, polysorbate, uh, the glycerol caprolate. Uh, now, I think if you were wanting to copy this formula, I think if you just used all of the ingredients I talked about, you could make something that works just the same as this product. <laughs> of course, it'd be a lot harder to market because there isn't much of a story there. And that's why they fill the formula with with a bunch of extracts, which probably don't do much, like clover flower extract, wood extract, magnolia extract. They have Icelandic moss extract. <laughs> apple extract you know uh, uh, as an aside a funny little story when uh, when i was working at alberto we uh, we bought the brand saint ives you know the saint ives brand
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: so so one of the the hooks on saint ives was it was made with swiss herbs right I don't, I don't know what swiss herbs are but apparently they're swiss herbs and Well, we bought it from a contract manufacturer, and apparently they didn't know what Swiss herbs were either. They just wrote that on their bottle. They didn't put any (laughs) Swiss herbs in there. You can't do that. (laughs) Well, yeah, a company that's following the rules can't, but if you're a contract manufacturer, you go, ah, sure, let's just say that. So, So we had to actually, when we inherited the, when we bought the brand, we had to actually go to Switzerland and find some company from Switzerland that was making some plant extracts, and we had to buy it from there.
1: That's so ridiculous. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah,
0: that's that's what goes on in the cosmetic industry. Now, so they have a bunch of extracts, and they put some other stuff, panthenol, glycerin amino acids, keratin, alantoin. Uh, and, oh, they also have castor seed oil in there. Now, if you remember from the last episode, we talked about castor seed oil. Do you remember what we talked about?
1: Yeah, that was uh, something I talked about. Yeah, It was.
0: Yeah. It was all about growing hair and whether that worked, right?
1: Yeah, that's probably why they threw a little bit in there to get you to think, oh, it has castor seed oil, must be working.
0: Well, I mean, what, what happens is that idea is out in the consumer consciousness. And so someone else see casserole and they're like, oh, I think I remember that makes your hair grow, even though it doesn't really. But mm-hmm. uh, people have that thought. Now, you might wonder why they picked these exact extracts. I was actually curious. And it turns out this wasn't a random choice. They, the raw material supplier, Givadon, actually happens to sell a material called Radensil, which is supposed to promote hair growth. They advertise it at that. And, yep. of course, it contains five or six different ingredients, one of which is the uh, chamomile sinus leaf, leaf extract, which is one of those extracts. So, really, they're just using a s- supplied ingredient and then properly listing the component material. So, they have a supplier that says, oh, this will grow hair, so they take that. And then they have some other hair-growing technologies. They have the uh, meristol pentapeptide-17, And it turns out there's a supplier called Simrise who sells that peptide that promotes hair growth.
1: Yeah, they specifically advertise that peptide to promote growth of eyebrow hair, I believe. It's either eyebrow or eyelash hair specifically, which is strange.
0: Right, and they talk about it stimulating the stem cell growth and that sort of thing. Uh, They also include another peptide called acetyl tetrapeptide 3, which just happens to be part of a blend sold by Lucas Meyer called Capixel? Capixel. Capixel. Mm-hmm. Well, this is made up of five ingredients, all of which are listed on this product, so that's probably what they're using. Uh, incidentally, for you hobby formulators, there's a place called makingcosmetics.com that sells this exact thing, that Capixel, but they call it follicle booster. So if you're looking to formulate... And you want to try it. There you go. Yeah,
1: be prepared to open your wallet. It's not affordable. And their studies were done at 5% or something outrageous like that. It's pretty ridiculous.
0: (laughs) Right. So if it did work, it's going to cost a lot. So anyway, it seems like this formulating strategy is that they kind of put together some standard film-forming serum. And then they go out and find suppliers who have these hair growth or these lash thickener ingredients. And then they just drop them in. And based on their ingredient list, you know, they probably use them at a high level. I mean, the peptide is the second ingredient. The supplier says use it from 2 to 10%. So, I don't know. They're probably using it at 2%, maybe a little more. I don't know.
1: If they're using it at the study level, I think the studies on that were done at 10%, which is really crazy. And this ingredient is not cheap. It's, it's very expensive, at least by hair care standards. So, yeah. wow.
0: Well, I mean, the... The product costs like uh, $88 for like a half-ounce tube. So so I guess their cost of goods can be pretty high.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, but the real question is, does it work?
0: That is a good question. Now, I should say that I'm skeptical by nature, and I'm never terribly impressed with the scientific validity of supplier-funded research. I mean, they have a vested interest in kind of exaggerating outcomes, or maybe they're going to ignore things that don't support the marketing story they want to tell. Uh, and they also aren't under the same advertising rules that they would be, say, if they were selling to a consumer. You know, Simmerize and Givadon, they can make some really impressive claims that go to chemists, whereas, say, P&G or Unilever uh, can't make the same kind of impressive claims to consumers. But for a small startup, they can just go to a supplier and ask them for something that can grow hair, and then they just drop it in there at some level. And they probably don't do any testings themselves. They just use the product because the supplier says it works. And if you're selling online and advertising through infomercials, you can be a lot more loosey-goosey with your claims. Of course, looking at their website, they actually do a pretty good job of writing their claims. They Now, they give the impression that the product is working like a drug, but they actually don't make any direct claims to that effect. For example, they say, quotes, this formula helps support stem cells present in the hair follicles, which control hair growth. So you can achieve a look of fuller, thicker brows without the need for excess makeup or microblading. I mean, that that claim... Formula helps support stem cells. I mean, what? that's so vague. What What does that even mean to support your stem cells? I, I don't know. That's just the kind of claim that cosmetic people will make. And I guess it's effective, right?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it helps that it is vague. And it sounds pretty fancy, sounds pretty technical. What does it mean? I don't know, because you're on to the next thought. Oh, stem cells, they help control hair, hair growth. Oh, it must make hair grow. You're already off on some other thought process about how the product works versus critically thinking about what they're saying.
0: Yeah, but if they get called out by some lawyer, they'll say, oh, wait, no, this is, we we didn't say that. It says this, right? (laughs) Now, importantly, though, nowhere in their literature or anywhere else do they specifically say this product will make your hair grow. So I doubt you're going to see any real benefit to this product beyond some film forming that might make your brows more noticeable or feel more noticeable. But to the question of safety... I would say this product is probably safe. I mean, at least as far as the ingredients go, Uh, Givadon, Simrise, uh, they all safety test their raw materials. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't really worry about product safety. I'd really be more worried about spending $88 for less than one ounce of a product. Woo.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of money.
0: All right, shall we go on to the uh, next question?
1: Yeah, our next question came from a user on Instagram. They say, hi, I've been listening to the podcast for quite a bit, but only just found you on Instagram. I just listened to the episode about lash lifts, which was episode 209, by the way, which made me wonder, are lash tints very safe, or do they have different dangers?
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so that, uh, that was the one where we talked about uh, like coloring your eyelashes and whether you should do that, and the answer is you shouldn't do that. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, that was, um, perming, perming your right, eyelashes. Right, right. Oh, that I was episode sorry, 209. Yeah. That, that's right. Uh, yeah. the answer is no, you should not do that. <laughs> uh, but this is specifically speaking about coloring your eyelashes. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. A lash tint is a service that uses hair colorants to temporarily color the eyelash a different color. Typically, the colors used for eyelash tints range from light brown to black. And are used because the individual wants to darken or accentuate their lashes without the use of a temporary colorant like mascara. And they want it to look a little natural, so they're going to be in the light brown to black range. Now, in order right. to color your eyelashes, you have to use some conventional hair color chemistry. In hair color, you have three options for coloring the hair. About from a chemistry perspective. You can use direct dyes, which are somewhat temporary and stick to the hair through ionic attraction, or you have permanent hair color, which employs hydrogen peroxide and oxidative dyes, which in combination with ammonia or another alkalizer like MEA penetrate the hair fiber to dye the hair. And then a third option could be a metallic dye that utilizes a metal salt that will oxidize in the hair fiber over time to progressively form a color.
0: So that's pretty much the same as regular hair colors.
1: Pretty much the same as coloring your regular hair, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But because of the chemistry of the eyelash, direct dyes are typically not employed as those tend to stick to the outside of the hair fiber. The eyelash has a different cuticle structure compared to a regular hair fiber, so it's hard to get anything in there without a more aggressive chemistry.
0: So are you saying it just... It it won't color it right, or that it's just.
1: I don't think you're going to get the longevity that you're looking for if you were to use a direct dye based eyelash.
0: Would you also get some of the dye like flaking off into your eyeball when you're?
1: I think working? it would uh, come off more easily, right? And you're yeah. washing your face, rubbing right. your eyes, so you want something that's going to more penetrate into the hair fiber.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So that
1: being said, when a company is manufacturing eyelash tint, they are likely going to choose a permanent hair color chemistry since you have ammonia and hydrogen peroxide to help swell the eyelash open and help the dye stuff penetrate the fiber as it's oxidizing the dyes together.
0: Right.
1: There is one company called Refectosil that is an Austrian company, I think, and they make an eyelash tint that's super popular in Europe and Canada. They utilize hydrogen peroxide and oxidative colorants much like that are used in coloring the hair fibers on your head. So it's it's pretty much the same chemistry except the tones and maybe the concentration of the d- dyes, the amount of ammonia, etc., are designed uh, for the eye area. They do offer a plant-based eyelash dye. They call it their sensitive collection. And uh, I, I'm going to use plant-based in air quotes. I've seen a lot of literature on the <laughs> internet where people are talking about their vegetable-based dyes or plant-based dyes. Uh, that's a bunch of, of horse doo-doo uh, <laughs> when we're talking about hair colorants for the lashes. If you look very closely at the ingredient list on these plant-based hair colorants for the eyelashes, sure, they're using horse chestnut or black walnut to give you the illusion that you know there are these colored extracts coloring the hair. Look a little closer, and you're going to see that there's silver nitrate in the hair color, which is the ah. metallic salt that's actually coloring the hair, so you know when they say plant extracts that's that's pretty much a stretch
0: you know that that brand name refectosil yeah Refe- that reminds me of like a, a spell from harry potter or
1: something
0: <laughs> refectosil <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's wow.
1: magic it's the plants jk it's silver nitrate exactly. now um <laughs> yeah uh well just a little fun fact by the way eyelashes do you know why they have to be colored more often than hair on your head?
0: Uh, I imagine they fall out more quickly.
1: That's part of it. Uh, um. Typically, eyelashes turn over every one to six months. Most people, uh, they turn over in six weeks. Yeah.
0: But it's like the- a hair, hair doesn't turn over nearly that quickly.
1: No, not as quickly. On your eyes, uh the structure of the hair fiber is a little different. On your head hair, you have a really large cortex, so you have a really large space that can hold oxidative dye in it, and you have a very tiny medulla if you have a medulla at all, which is a hole in the center of the hair. On your yeah. eyelash hair, it is has a larger medulla present and a very, very tiny cortex so that uh. you aren't able to stuff as much stuff in there. So that's another reason why even if your eyelashes don't turn over, I think you can't get as much color in there. Uh, and then gotcha. it can also come Makes out sense. over time. Yeah, because you're wiping, you're washing, you're putting oils on your eyes and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, let's talk about the safety of it.
0: Yeah, is this chemistry going on by your eye? Is that safe?
1: Jeez. Yeah, I personally wouldn't do it. I think yeah. um, let's talk about a little bit. So Sure. Sure. in Europe, Europe has some pretty strict regulations when it comes to a lot of ingredients. In fact, when it comes to eyelash tinting, they have approved silver nitrate up to 4% in eyelash tints. They do have a handful of oxidative dyes that have studies that show safety for the eyelash area, but a majority of the colorants that you can use on the head are not approved for brow or lash. So Keep this in mind to our EU listeners. If you have a hair color that's for your head, you should not just throw it on your brows or your lashes because it may contain colorants that are approved for the head, but not approved for the brow or lash. So you don't want to do that at all. You want to use specific products designed for the lash area.
0: Incidentally, what color does silver nitrate give you?
1: Uh, I think it gives like a grayish color. Okay. I think. I'm not sure. I don't use metallic salts. Okay, okay. Uh, I think they're super old-fashioned, sure. um, and typically they're used in male beard products, which you can't even use a lot of them anymore. However, um, but it probably gives just like a dingy color, uh-huh. I, I'm okay. going to guess. Yeah, kind of maybe like a pewter or something like that. I don't know for sure, though.
0: Now, the regulations are different in U.S.?
1: For sure. So in the U.S., there are not any colorants approved for use in the eyelash area. Ah. Zero. So that is why on the FDA website, you can look and see which shipments they seize in the U.S. Uh, They often put out these import alerts that show you where uh, they have seized incoming shipments of illegal products coming into the U.S. And a product that has eyelash colorants uh, is one that they will seize and close the shipping container and say, no, you can't come into the U.S. Uh, And that is because the position of the FDA is that eyelash and eyebrow tints have been known to cause serious eye injuries in the past, including blindness. So they are not allowing any colorants to be used for the eyelash area. And it's not just because of the dyes. The dyes are are part of the problem from a safety perspective. But when you're looking at hydrogen peroxide and ammonia or MEA or other alkali Um, or sodium hydroxide, even in the eye area, it's pretty dangerous. It's not a good combination. And for me, yes, you can go to an esthetician or somebody that has a lot of experience applying eyelash tint safely. It's just not a risk I'm willing to take. I really enjoy my vision. And furthermore, in some states the Board of Barbering and Cosmetology does not allow you to apply lash tint at all on people. For example, the great state of California or Republic of California or whatever the heck we call ourselves here, they do not allow eyelash tinting as a salon service because there are no authorized colorants that are allowed to be used in products. And if there's no authorized colorants, therefore there's no authorized products that can be used in the lash area. So Um, you cannot legally use those types of products in the state of California. You'd be risking um, your license if you were to do that.
0: Makes sense. Although, interestingly, uh, the EU allows it. So here's a case where the FDA is more strict than the EU regulations. Yeah, and
1: I don't want to say the EU is like super sold on it. I mean, there are still a lot of other risks that have to do without, um, you know, the chemical composition of the product or the colorants themselves colorants are highly regulated and highly studied for safety because they are known sensitizers and people can be allergic to them, just like people can be allergic to a hair dye. So that is another risk. It's really critical. If you are choosing to use eyelash tint, please patch test 48 hours before you color your lashes to ensure that you don't have any allergies or sensitivities. It is not worth having an adverse reaction and, you know, eventually going into anaphylactic shock if you ignore the signs. So please, please patch test. And again, permanent eyelash and eyebrow tints and dyes are known to cause serious eye injuries, including blindness. I once got hair color in my eye. It was uh, a terrible situation. It was not at work because at work, I wear safety glasses. I was actually coloring my hair at home one time and some splash in my eye. And it was absolutely horrible. So uh, another reason why I won't do it, but yeah, and then uh, if you are seeing anything that's like, oh, I mean, some people can use henna. I don't recommend it because to use henna, you need heat and you need time. And around the eye area, like, what are you going to do? Leave the henna on your eyes for two hours while you, uh, you know, keep your eyes closed and let the henna penetrate? It's just not realistic. But if you do see these vegetable based dyes or hear that people are using vegetable based dyes, uh, they're totally full of it. Look closely; you're probably going to see silver nitrate or another metallic salt uh, that is present. It's definitely not beet juice.
0: Right. So the bottom line is, it's not exactly safe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't recommend it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah I don't, all right, Valerie. We've got an audio question.
1: Ooh, I think it's a big one too.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, Lisa was able to slip in three questions. (laughs) So let's see what we get to answer. Hi, I have three questions. First, I wondered, why is it that anti-aging ingredients, retinoids, niacinamide, and vitamin C, also inhibit or reduces melanin in your skin? I'm a really pale and tan Fitzpatrick type 2, and I appreciate every melanin molecule in my skin personally. My second question is, why aren't there more retinaldehyde products out there? Are they expensive to produce, or really photosensitive? Or... And my final question is, is PPD the best indication of UVA protection? I'm looking for a sunscreen with really high UVA protection. So should I be buying a sunscreen with PPD 30+, or sunscreen with 5 boot stars, for example? Or should I find a sunscreen with so-and-so UV filters? Thank you for listening to my questions. Well, thanks for that question, Lisa. I mean, actually, three questions. <laughs> Nicely done. Let's see, let's see what we can do. So first, there's the anti-aging question, um, and specifically anti-aging and how they affect melanin inhibition. Mm-hmm. So to understand this, it was helpful to go through the biology of skin color. Skin pigmentation is actually a complicated process. Science hasn't completely figured out, but the basics are as follows. Skin color is caused by a pigment called melanin. Uh, melanin is produced in skin cells called melanocytes, and they're located at the lower levels of the epidermis. Then upon exposure to UV light, melanin is produced through a process uh, called melanogenesis, which converts the amino acid tyrosine to melanin. Now, the melanin is then transported uh into your skin cells where it then will get into a skin cell and then protect the, um, the nucleus from UV radiation damage uh, and stopping cancer.
1: And the nucleus in your cells is responsible for holding DNA, which is your genetic makeup. And that's why it's really important to protect the nucleus is you don't want the DNA exposed to UV damage. That's how DNA mutations occur and eventually cancer can occur as a result of that.
0: Exactly. Now, the more melanocytes that you have, the more melanin you're going to produce in your skin, and so that's going to lead to uh, the darker skin you have. Now, of course, skin color is also related to the type of melanin that's produced. It gets a little complicated, but those are kind of the basics. So, uh, So, all right, that's the process is regulated by this thing called the tyrosinase enzyme, and that's important because many of the ingredients used in skin lightening are tyrosinase inhibitors. So tyrosinase is just that enzyme that converts the, that helps the reaction to convert that tyrosine to the melanin. So it's just kind of that the thing that makes it work. So these tyrosinase inhibitors, uh, they interact with that enzyme and they stop it from producing the melanin. Uh, Vitamin C and retinoids are examples of ingredients that work this way. Now there's also some ingredients that can work in a different way such as interfering with that transfer of the melanin to the keratinocytes now i talked about the uh, melanin the melanocytes will make the melanin but then that melanin has to get transported to the other cells and if you can stop that process of it getting transported uh, then that's also going to lead to skin lightening and niacinamide is thought to work that way so that's basically why these ingredients will affect skin colors of course the effect is not dramatic, so I doubt you're going to notice any significant change in your skin color by using anti aging products uh, with these actives anyway. But, um, you know, I, as far as the skin lightening piece goes, these are not really um, highly effective lighteners, although you can see data that shows they have some effect.
1: Yeah, vitamin C is purported to have brightening effects because of this mechanism that Perry's talking about. I think you're going to see a lot more, we'll call it bang for your buck, if you're using something that's actually designed for skin lightening versus an anti-aging ingredient that may have a side effect of melanin inhibition. So a skin lightening active would be like hydroquinone, which we've talked about on the show before.
0: All right. How about the next question she got? Yeah. Why don't you take this one, Valerie?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, The second question was, why aren't there more retinaldehyde products? Well, while there are a few studies that suggest retinaldehyde has skin benefits similar to topical retinoic acid, there are limited clinical trials and the effect is not noticeably strong on the consumer level. So I suspect that retinaldehyde has had its day, consumers aren't totally impressed with the results, and that's not why it's in products. I mean, you still will see it, of course, because it's less irritating than retinol, but if it were really effective, I would think that it would be used more frequently because... If it's less irritating, that's a huge sell. But if it doesn't work as well, uh, people aren't just going to use it. And, you know, these products aren't really affordable. So I think, you know, it's important that the product can be as effective as possible. Also, perhaps one of the other reasons we don't see it is that it could be more difficult to make stable in a formula. These actives are hard to stabilize, uh, vitamin C, all of the retinol and retinoids, very hard to stabilize. So, uh, Retinaldehyde is not excluded from that.
0: Anti-aging ingredients get sort of in, you know, they're kind of faddish, right? I don't know what the hot anti-aging ingredient is now. I guess CBD is kind of the hot ingredient now. <laughs> These things come and go, right?
1: Yeah, I actually was, I did read one non-COVID article this week, uh, and I, oh, yeah. I decided not to talk about it. It was about mushroom extract, and that's the new hottest oh. anti-aging ingredient. And I'm like, mushroom extracts, wasn't that like a thing with origins in the 90s? Uh, and then they got bought by Estee Lauder or whatever. So, yeah, yeah things come in, they come out, they yeah. come back around. Yeah.
0: Well, then the third question she snuck in there was uh, whether PPD is the best indication of UVA protection. Now, when I say PPD, what what do you think of there?
1: p diamine, which is a primary hair dye. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it turns out PPD also means uh, in the EU it's uh, it's the initial it's an initialism that stands for persistent pigment darkening. Okay, you, that's you, cool. Did I didn't did you know. See, that. I use that I you use that term initialism, you know, instead of uh, acronym because it's not an acronym; it's an initialism. You know the difference there?
1: Well, um, I would guess that initialism means initials so my initials would be vg and ppd would be the initials for persistent pigment darkening i know what an acronym is but i guess i don't really know how to explain the definition of it so i don't know how they're different uh, i just know that initialism i'm guessing is you are are saying the letters
0: right because an acronym you say it as a word so you say nasa you don't say nasa
1: so okay say? all right yeah so if your middle initial started with an A, I could say P-A-R, which would be an initialism for your name, but an acronym for you would be PAR.
0: Exactly. And now the Beauty Brains has <laughs> kind <of, maybe>. generated it <laughs> into the Grammar Girls. <laughs> Actually, the Grammar Girl podcast is wonderful, but that's all Oh, that is that an
1: it. actual podcast?
0: It is, yeah. Mignon oh, cool. Fogarty. yeah. She's, yeah that she's sounds fun. She's been around fun. for a while. It's fun. All right. All right, but let's get back to PPD. <laughs> PPD is uh, it's mainly used in EU and Asia, and it's an indication of how long you can stay in the sun before you get a tan. So in that way... It...
1: Well, for me, that would be never. Is, is that one of the <laughs> oh, scores?
0: <laughs> really? No. I, don't, I don't know where that fits. But um, So it's like the SPF, but SPF measures UVB exposure and determines how quickly you're going to burn. PPD is a measure of the UVA exposure and will t- say how long it'll take for you to get a tan so a ppd of 15 would mean you could stay out in the sun 15 times longer before you start getting a tan or for you infinity i guess
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'd go off the scale oh man
0: now ppd is just a measure of the uva protection so it doesn't give an indication of the uvb protection for that you need the spf value so this Boots star rating system is a measure of that ratio of the UVA to the UVB protection. So it attempts to give you a measure of both UVA, UVB. Mm-hmm. They have a five-star rating. And if you get a five-star, that means the UVA protection is 90% or more of the UVB protection. So say you had a four-star rating with an SPF of 30.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The UVA protection is going to be somewhere about you know, 24 to 27% of that.
1: Because it's 80 to 90% of the SPF rating in the four-star range. Okay.
0: Exactly, exactly. So the, those stars can give you a measure of both the UVB and the UVA protection. Okay. But the bottom line here is that if you get the boots rating of five stars and an SPF of 30 that's plenty of protection. I I think, you know, in an upcoming show, we can do a review of all these different types of UV ratings around the world.
1: I think that would be really valuable because, you know, in the United States, we don't use the boots rating system. Right. We obviously don't use the PPD rating. In <laughs> Asia, they have a PA plus t- system, type yeah. rating. Yeah it's, yeah, it's different because... In the world, every geography has different regulatory restrictions and requirements. And SPF is no different in the United States. If we wanted to indicate a product has UVA protection, we would indicate it as broad spectrum. So
0: right. but yeah, I think there's no that number would... attached to that actually. So you don't... yeah, it either
1: protects you from UVA or it doesn't. So right. I think that would be really cool to do yeah. a show. And I could talk about all my favorite sunscreens and you could talk about how. You just spray your face with spray sunscreen.
0: I, I sprayed in my hands now and rubbed. So. I,
1: I won't ever let that go. I was appalled when you told me. Oh my gosh, flabbergasted.
0: Speaking of appalled, shall we go into the last question? <laughs>
1: sure. Um, another Instagram question Mask and and asks Why do dermatologists say that hyaluronic acids are pointless? I was told that the molecule's too big to be able to penetrate into the skin.
0: Wow. Yeah. I, I don't hear a lot of dermatologists say that, but I guess some do. Yay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> if you've followed us on Instagram before, uh, we did post a change my view where uh, Perry does not believe that hyaluronic acid is effective. And uh, oh,
0: oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. I don't believe that it is more effective than glycerin. <laughs> I believe it's effective. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well- <laughs> Yeah. We've, we've talked about this on the show a bit before. So if you are new to listening to the show or you just forget, or maybe you didn't catch those episodes, hyaluronic acid is a polymer found in our tissues. It's already found in our body and it's a pretty big polymer. It has a super high molecular weight in between one to 3000 Dalton's or or bigger. I think it's probably bigger than that. And uh, it's extremely hygroscopic, meaning it really, really attracts water. I've read that it attracts up to a thousand times its weight in water. Have you heard that?
0: I have heard that a thousand times yeah
1: yeah it's so that's pretty incredible the water binding capacity it has, so as you can imagine, uh people love to use it because it can moisturize skin
0: right and uh
1: that. yeah that's it's pretty incredible, but what hyaluronic acid can't do if it has too big of a molecular weight is penetrate into the skin. So it's pretty much going to uh, sit topically. And as you get older, you uh, lose hyaluronic acid content in your skin. You don't have the ability to uh, continue to regenerate it. And that's why, uh, partially why your skin can start to look like it's aging. So as you get older, you want to pump as much as you can uh, back into you. I know that sounds kind of right. weird. Um, and most people are going to do that topically. You can get HA fillers at your dermatologist, uh, but most people are going to go to the Sephora and say, oh, let me get this product with hyaluronic acid. Uh, it is probably going to be too large to penetrate into the skin. There are a lot of companies who are making low molecular weight, and now I've even seen ultra-low molecular weight, hyaluronic acid products that have... A very low weight. So instead of being... uh, So it's a small molecule. Yeah. Instead of being these really big, large polymers, it's going to be really chopped up tiny pieces of hyaluronic acid. And the idea is that it can penetrate into the stratum corneum and bind water there and leave your skin uh, feeling really hydrated, improve skin elasticity, uh, make your skin look hydrated, fill in your fine lines and wrinkles and all that kind of stuff.
0: Of course, if they chop it up, is it still going to work the same way?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it will work or be able to bind water as much, but um, I have read that hyaluronic acid can improve. Uh, sure, it can make skin appear hydrated. Um, it has yeah. been shown to improve the signs of rosacea, which probably comes from forming this film and helping lubricate the skin and prevent water loss. Um do I believe it penetrates deep down into the skin? Maybe, sure, at the smaller molecular weights. But Perry, you do bring up a good point. Is it as effective as some of these more economic hygroscopic ingredients? It's
0: Eh. tough to say. Well, dermatologists don't seem to think so, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think hyaluronic acid works fine. I don't think it's Pointless. I think, uh, yeah, if you're looking for it to penetrate into the skin, it's important to buy from a brand that is claiming they're using low weight or ultra low weight. You're probably going to see benefit from using equal benefit from using other moisturizers, I'm going to guess, uh, without paying that high price tag. But if you're using hyaluronic acid and you're loving it, I know Barbara Sturm makes an incredibly expensive one. I actually have tried it. It's like eight hundred bucks for three ounces. We've talked about it on the show before. Whoa. It's a pretty nice serum. Is it like eight hundred dollars nice? No. But um yeah, I know <laughs> it felt great, but I've also felt like a million other serums that fill that way and they're like thirty bucks. So
0: Yeah. Um Yeah. So yeah. That's probably that's probably why dermatologists are saying it's pointless because you can get uh, other ingredients that can have the same effect.
1: Yeah. Now, um, if you're getting hyaluronic acid fillers, which is an actual injection from your dermatologist, I would be surprised if dermatologists said they're pointless because I have seen a lot of before and afters and the results look pretty incredible. So um, here we're just talking about topical HA.
0: Yeah, maybe that's why because the dermatologist really wants to do the injection. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, that's a good point. So,
0: All right. Look at the time. i'm I'm being called called back by the quarantine
1: (laughs) (laughs) and i have to go make myself a quarantini
0: ah indeed indeed (laughs) well thank you all for listening thank you for joining me valerie hey if you get a chance can you go over to itunes and leave us a review That way, uh, other people can find the show and we'll ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Incidentally, if you want to get your question answered, feel free to record it on your smartphone and then email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com.
1: We love to answer audio questions, so don't forget to send us to them. Also, follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018, on Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains, and we have a Facebook page.
0: And one more thing, the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is really the best way to do that. Uh, this will help keep the show ad-free, and it's the best way to keep that financial bias out of the show. So, you know, if we can talk about some Beverly Hills MD $88 product and be honest about the whole thing. Uh, so if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com thebeautybrains and subscribe.
1: Thanks again for listening, everyone, and remember be brainy about your beauty.
0: Thanks, everyone. Kittens!